Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. The impeachment season has opened, and as we were supposed to know all along, this process was never designed for orderly court battle over law. It's about politics, survival, and media war, virtually without rules, and it takes the slanging tone of Trump time up a notch from a bad circus to mixed martial arts. President Trump is raising the insult level, talking this week about low-life Democrats and stone-cold crooked Bidens, father and son, and he's raising his bet that he cannot be blamed for digging political dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine. He said out loud he will do it all again, asking China for dirt to match. Under the impeachment gun, meeting the press alongside the bemused president of Finland, Donald Trump was perhaps redder of face than usual, his rant more repetitive, but the performance overall was more of the same. You have a perfect, I mean perfect, conversation with a president of another country, Ukraine in this case. And they try and say, oh, let's impeach him. They've been trying to impeach me from the day I got elected. I've been going through this for three years. They've been trying to impeach me from the day I got elected. And you know what? They failed. And this is the easiest one of all because this one is based on one conversation. What about Obama's conversation with the president of Russia, where he says, hey, hey, tell Vlad, I'll I'll talk to him after the election's over, I'll talk to him. Nobody reports that, right? That stuff you should report. But you people should be ashamed of yourself. We have the most dishonest media that you can imagine, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Okay, I think I've answered most of your questions. What do you think? That's a taste of what we'll be getting on a sidetrack next to the president's re-election campaign for the next year or so. The trick will be to focus on what's happening to the country as the party pros hammer one another. Our guest, Tim Snyder, is one of our monitors on the big body politic. He's the Yale historian of Europe's political collapse in the 20th century, the plunge into tyranny and slaughter, and he's made himself famous in Trump time with a little manual called On Tyranny, warning that the U.S. is not immune against zombification. So I asked Tim Snyder this week to check the vital signs of our own democracy and the common stake in this impeachment drama. I think it's a very mixed picture. I'm a historian, and so I don't take for granted that democracy is normal. Democracy is a challenge. The rule of law is a challenge. The journalists have done a very good job, but there are far, far too few of them. There are some awfully good lawyers and physicians and members of other professions who have organized themselves in useful and interesting ways. People have entered politics who wouldn't have been in politics, and there are people who are marching. Those are all good things. On the other hand, there is the natural human tendency, which is present in Americans as in everyone else, to say whatever has just happened must be normal because it has just happened. And we have gone pretty far down the road of normalizing things, which if we've been able to look ahead at them would have seemed to us very abnormal indeed. Now comes Ukraine Gate. First of all, that's your wheelhouse, as they say, Eastern Europe. Did this scandal have to happen on the borders of old Russia? Could it have happened anywhere else? Does it matter that it's Ukraine? 
Let me start from a classic observation from the East European dissidents who I study and who I admire, which is that there is an organic connection between lying and violence. This story, which we're preoccupied with, goes back in its essence to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in early 2014. That invasion was covered up by an incredibly sophisticated and unfortunately also very successful propaganda campaign, which was delivered by way of the internet. That propaganda campaign didn't work so well in Ukraine, but it did work well in Europe and it did work surprisingly well in the United States. And so what happened was that the Russians learned that they could use the internet to tell people what they wanted to hear, to radicalize their views, to push them away from a simple event in the present. For example, we're invading our neighbor and into fantasies. Mm. That led them on to other attempts with Brexit, with the support of Mr. Trump, with the attempt to make it harder for Senator Clinton to run for president. That is the beginning of all of this, right? It's the big lie which is behind all the other big lies that come. Because Mr. Trump's candidacy for president, as we know very well if we follow the simple facts, was among many other things a Russian influence operation. I'm not saying that's the only thing that was happening, but it was one of the things that was happening. I'm not saying that's the only reason people voted for Mr. Trump. That would be absurd. People had lots of reasons, some of them good, to vote for Mr. Trump. But one of the things which was happening was that there was a Russian influence operation. Mr. Trump lies about that. We know it's true, and we know that he knows it's true. In fact, we even know now that he's talked to the Russians about it and basically thanked them for it. But because it's true and he chose to lie about it, we are where we are right now. What this Ukraine scandal is, is Mr. Trump's attempt to put a fictional scandal on top of a real one. There's a new scandal of him trying to get a foreign leader to involve himself in American elections. And by the way, no one's ever going to beat Mr. Trump's record in doing this two different times. But at the same time, what this Ukraine scandal is, it's a kind of cover-up to make us forget the original lie. So all this is lies built on lies, built on lies, built on lies. At the Trump end of this scandal, pretty clearly he was manipulating foreign policy for one man's private, selfish benefit. Is it an impeachable offense? What is happening is really quite shocking. If we don't have a policy, if we just have a president who's sending his minions around the world to try to confirm fictions, then we have a Mm. bunch of other leaders, whether it's in Italy or Britain or Ukraine or Australia, who are nodding and smiling at us the way that you nod and smile at people who are basically bats, as opposed to being able to project power. So if you're a conservative, you ought to be very worried about that. If you're not a conservative, if you think the United States, for example, should be projecting values or human rights or something like this, that has also completely disappeared. Is this impeachable? I mean, look, there are a whole bunch of things that he should be impeached for. I mean, starting with the emoluments clause, he's obviously using the presidency to enrich himself. Just because Robert Mueller is not a Hollywood star doesn't mean that obstruction of justice is not also an impeachable offense. There are a whole lot of things he could be impeached for. I would like to see articles of impeachment, even if they focus on Ukraine, which at least list the other things that future historians or future citizens will want to have as a kind of point of reference. But if you're asking, is Ukraine alone impeachable? Absolutely. Presidents of the United States should not be bringing to bear 
the power of the federal government in order to bully foreign leaders to get dirt on their political opponents. It's not only against the law. I mean, that should just be self-evident. I mean, if, if even from a narrow, self-interested point of view, it just can't be something which even Republicans in the Senate and the House would want to see happen again under different circumstances. Three questions that I'd love everybody to respond to. One, do we have a moral obligation here to impeach? Is he so far over the line that not to do something, not to blow a whistle, would be to be complicit? Uh, That would be a yes. For me, that's been true for a while. You know, this may sound a little bit naive, but ultimately the stakes are whether there are any principles or not. Because if there are not any principles, then the Mm -hmm. constitutional regime as such is a joke. The constitutional regime is based upon the idea that there are principles and we have a rough consensus around those principles. Mr. Trump obviously doesn't believe in things like that. He's Mm -hmm. more in the Putin-esque world of everything's a joke. The only thing that matters is power and money and so on. That's his world, that world of fiction and manipulation and power. And he's not alone there. But a constitutional system depends upon precisely there being principles. Mm -hmm. And if you don't stand up for them at some point, then they stop being real because no one else believes in them. So, yeah, my answer would be yes. Second question. Have we answered the Colin Powell doctrine question about war. Do we have a clear, attainable objective in this impeachment drive and an exit strategy at the end? So I don't like the Powell Doctrine at all. Okay. (laughs) Um, The notion that you can't have an exit strategy when the question is protecting the federal government or the Constitution. I'd answer the question a slightly different way. I think it's very important, not just with impeachment, but in politics in general, to recognize that Mr. Trump is not the problem. Mr. Mm -hmm. Trump is a symptom of larger problems. There are reasons for which we are all co-responsible why he could be elected in 2016 which have to do with everything from opioids to inequality to the death of the local press to the death of the international press, which have to do with our electoral system, which have to do with complacency among the Democrats. There are all kinds of reasons why Mr. Trump could be elected, and those reasons give us a big agenda of things that have to be changed. So impeachment has to happen, in my view, because he hasn't really left the Democrats any choice. But the Democrats, or more broadly, people who care about the future of the country have to remember that politics is not ultimately about his story. You know, his story is going to end in an ignominious way, one way or the other, right? But politics is ultimately about the other 350 million people who live in this country and what their future is going to look like. That's what politics really has to be about. That has to be the dominant note in the next year or so. I think the trick is that impeachment is in a minor key and the better America that could exist That's the major key. And of course, this country really, really could be a lot better than it is right now. You're dealing with my question three ahead of time and beautifully. I would have asked, is there a result coming out of an impeachment process that would prepare this country to deal with its real existential crisis, which is outside the elite political class? At the top of my crisis list would be climate change, social breakdown toward two Americas, and this long overextension of military power around the world that has been nothing but embarrassment and defeat since World War II. Will we be better ready to tackle the real issues after an impeachment process? I think the answer to that question is yes, because one of the things which is a precondition for getting our minds around and our policy instruments around almost all the major challenges is an acceptance of the rule of law. 
we're not going to get traction on pretty much anything if we allow the head of state to say, I'm beyond the law, I can do whatever I want, which is where we are basically now. I mean, Trump used to deny that he did bad things. Now he says, I do bad things and they're illegal and so what? There's nothing that can happen. If you don't catch that, hmm. it's going to be very hard to say, well, we should have tighter rule of law around our military interventions. And I agree with you completely about that. Or we need to develop legal instruments which support alternative forms of energy and which, you know, divert incentives away from extractive fossil fuels and so on and so forth. So I think the answer is yes, but of course, it's, it's not the only thing that has to happen. I think it probably is necessary at this point, though. Tim Snyder will have more to say about our need to envision a future after this impeachment fight. Coming up, takeaways for today from the Nixon-Watergate trial from two players who were in on it. This is Open Source. It's impeachment launch time against President Trump. Our guest, Matt Taibbi, is a journalist beyond category, an adventurer in Russia once with his offbeat journal, The Exile, then a famous muckraker on Wall Street for Rolling Stone, the magazine. Matt, you deflated the Russiagate case against Trump before it was over. You deflated the media hype around it, too, before the Mueller report fell flat. What do you make of Ukraine Gate so far? Well, the, the, the difference between Russiagate and Ukraine Gate is clearly there's more of a there there than there was with the original Russiagate allegations, you know, specifically things like the Steele report, the leaking of the handing of Steele report to Donald Trump. We, you know, there was a huge controversy for years that where people were chasing rumors of Trump being a, a, a long cultivated foreign agent and sexual escapades in Moscow and, um, you know, an espionage plot with Putin. None of that stuff materialized. Here we have clearly an act to look at, which is this, the phone call with the the Ukrainian president Zelensky. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real question here is, is how big of a deal is it? It's certainly, you know, in terms of an allegation, far below where, where the stakes were with Russiagate, where we were essentially accusing the president of being a, you know, a foreign agent ent entering the White House. We have a whistleblower, too, which is new. Yeah, I'm really uncomfortable with the use of the term whistleblower, given that this is a, a CIA person and the mm -hmm. CIA has ritualistically abused basically every whistleblower that's come through its building. Uh, they've chased them to all ends of the earth. People who are actual whistleblowers of the, of the intelligence community, um, they're living in foreign countries and never come back or they, or they are you know, in prison here. We, the intelligence agencies uh, conduct surveillance of whistleblowers trying to talk to Congress and to the uh, inspector general. So the hostility of that, of that group towards actual whistleblowers makes me uncomfortable because there's, this is clearly a person who's going to have significant institutional support. Um, right. and, and so I have a problem with who, that. Who might have planted him? Well, I don't know if it's planted. I just think this, you know, what, as the point that you were making before about the difference between a, a problem that's, you know, on behalf of the population and, and basically an argument between, between two wings of uh, the elite uh, consensus this is basically one of those situations where you're going to have a whistleblower who's a representative of some powerful interests or at least is backed by them in Washington, as opposed to a person who's, who's really all alone, which is what, mo what most whistleblowers go through. Matt, we're going to get to your new book about media, but quickly now, the split 
is spectacular between legacy media, which is gleeful, the New York Times out front again against Trump, and Fox, of course, dug in with Trump. Is anybody telling this story straight or the way you'd tell it? Well, I think that's that's a problem right now. I mean, I, I, I hear from people, you know, via email and social media, and I think a, a, a huge complaint right now is the, what this story is, has become is people are saying, you know, you need to be stand up and be counted. Are you for Trump or against him? And this is extended to journalists where I think one of the things that used to be a nice thing about this job is that we didn't have to take sides. We just kind of used to have to say this happened, that happened, you figure it out. And that's kind of not where we are right now. I think all it's difficult to know, to parse exactly what's going on because everybody feels invested politically in this outcome. And I, I think people are crying out for, for a news agency that, that isn't really on anybody's side. <laughs> Maybe we should start one. Stand by, Matt. <laughs> Elizabeth Holtzman joins us from New York. She was a freshman in Congress in 1974 and a member of the Judiciary Committee that voted three articles of impeachment against President Nixon in the Watergate case. By now... Ms. Holtzman, dare I say, impeachment law and politics are your wheelhouse. You were against impeaching Bill Clinton in Monica Gate. You were for impeaching George W. Bush for the Iraq War. And you were ahead of the game last year when you published the case for impeaching Trump in book form. Question, what won it for you and the Democrats in 1974? And what does Nancy Pelosi have to win this time? Welcome. Excuse me, I disagree entirely with your formulation that we won it for the Democrats in 1974. We won it for the country. And that's really critical. I'll stand corrected. No, no, no. Go ahead. That's a really an important point because I think what I've just heard from your other guest is just, you know, (laughs) sounds like propaganda. But let's go back to what happened in Watergate. Where Richard Nixon got elected in a huge landslide in 1972, one of the biggest in our country's history. And because the process of impeachment was so fair and so solid and so professional that the Americans who had voted for Nixon changed their minds and supported his removal from office overwhelmingly. Hmm. And that's the key that the American people were united because they, in the end, agreed upon, and they learned this common ground through the impeachment process, that more important than any president, than any party, was the rule of law in our Constitution, and that that was going to keep us strong as a nation. And that's what happened in Watergate. And that, so this is not a win for Democrats. This is a loss for the country that we even have to consider impeachment, that we have a president who has so seriously and gravely abused the power of his office. That's a loss for America. Fair That's enough. a loss for democracy. And, and, and we've got to regain it. Peter Rodino for the Judiciary Committee got, I think, the right credit for taking it somehow out of mere partisan politics. But there's still a, a need to, to win this case. John Dean says that what... Nancy Pelosi needs is a John Dean, which is to say a defector from inside. He had told Nixon before that there was a cancer on that presidency, and he knew all the players and what they were up to. He wants to nominate Don McGahn, the White House lawyer, as the insider to reveal the truth. Could that happen? uh, Well, McGahn has refused to testify, so he's been co-opted by the Trump administration, so, you know, I think that 
that he's not a profile in courage. Well, actually, John Dean wasn't either. He was going to be prosecuted unless he uh, went along and and uh, cooperated with the prosecution too. So we're not talking about profiles in courage here. What we're talking time, about, but I think, but I think the case is really pretty overwhelming in terms of the abuse of power. What is, it, what is a high crime and misdemeanor, which is the constitutional standard for impeachment? A high crime and misdemeanor is an egregious bu- abuse of power that threatens our democracy or threatens the liberties of our people. That was overwhelmingly clear in Watergate, and it's overwhelmingly clear here. We have to, there are some little pieces of this that have to still be investigated. We sure it'd be great to have uh, other insiders come out and tell the whole story, but there's a lot already in the public record, a huge amount, including if you go back to Nixon and Watergate, one of the grounds for the impeachment was dangling pardons in front of the Watergate burglars to keep them from cooperating with the prosecutors. Hmm. What do we see here? Dangling a pardon in front of Manafort, refused to cooperate after he began to dangling pardons in front of others. That's in the public eye. Some of it isn't in the public eye and should be investigated, but we have so much that a precedent was established Mm. on with regard to Watergate that it's a very sad day for America. What we're talking about is not a win for the Democrats. We're talking about a win for the rule of law and a win for democracy, and that's really what we have to keep our eye on. How many counts would you put into this? How many articles of impeachment you put in? You're suggesting, I mean, a lot of people would say Ukraine Gate is the least of this man's abuses. Ralph Nader's no, been no, saying for a, years that he, he's the most <laughs> indictable president that ever was. And you well, could, yeah, no, no, no. Let's get away from indictment. You don't need to commit a crime. To no, no, commit I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I should have said impeachment. I think that's uh, impeachable. really different. We never yeah. had any requirement, and we established that as a precedent in, in uh, the, the impeachment uh, effort against Nixon. We do not need proof of any kind of criminal behavior. That's really the key thing here. And uh, the Republicans sometimes will make that argument that you don't have that. But the grounds, what, what we have already in the public record is enormous. The Ukraine gate, if you want to call it that, is just, a, is just another example. It's neither bigger nor smaller than other things. It's his use of the government for private personal gain. That is what we, we, uh, what we uh, uh, voted for impeachment against Richard Nixon and the articles of impeachment voted by the House Judiciary Committee, and that's what we see here and in the uh, cover-up of the um, effort to, of the uh, Russiagate investigations and uh, emolument, use of uh, private enrichment, it's all about using the government for himself and not for the benefit of the American people. Speak of, That's the abuse of power. Speak of the art of politics, of prose, of legal thinking that went into those impeachment articles in 1974. And you're right. They were a sort of monument uh, written for the Senate, written for the public, written for history, part of the permanent record. How broad should they be in this case? And what's the magic of enlisting the whole country in a verdict? Well, I, I, I don't know that there's a magic in the number of charges. There were three articles of impeachment. One had to do with the cover-up, talking about the Nixon uh, impeachment effort. One had to do with various abuses of power, many, cover-up, 
breaking into Ellsberg Psychiatrist's office, having an enemies list uh, to audit the the um, uh, the tax returns of his political opponents, of people who disagreed with him, uh, illegal wiretaps, a whole bunch of things. People understood all of that stuff because it was laid out very carefully in a very um, professional, fair way. Here, there are many, many articles and not really probably enough time to investigate everything. I think that the uh, Ukraine Gate is a very good would you call it, opening to under, for the American people to understand the misuse of government for private, political, personal ends by uh, Donald Trump. Then you can look at the other ways in which he's done that, whether it's enriching himself personally, vile, blatant, uh, thumbing his nose at the emoluments clause of the Constitution, putting money in his pocket from foreign governments, from states, from federal but, government, and so forth. So you have that, and also I would add the... Uh, some of the materials in the Mueller report. You may have to, you, you can't have everything now, but you can have enough to give the American people a sense that what we're talking about is a systematic, egregious abuse of power that threatens our democracy. Not one time bad, 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 but many times bad, 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 and okay. a threat to our democracy. I want Matt Tavian on this because. There's a funny failure all along to talk about these things or to find a forum in which to talk about them. So many people want this president checked, whether it's trade wars or the Cold War, maybe hot war with Iran, immigration, cages at the border. Have we lost our capacity, Matt Taibbi and Ms. Holtzman too, uh, but our capacity to argue, to push back on an executive? Matt? Uh, well, clear, clearly there's no... There's there is no real dialogue between Republicans and Democrats really anymore. I mean, the, the, we're essentially in a state of open, permanent political conflict. Um, you know, I, for instance, with this uh, situation, uh, you know, I've talked to some people on the Hill who said maybe in an in an earlier period where the situation was not as um, you know as divided as it is right now, you might have had an idea to do something like a congressional measure of censure where the, there the idea would have been you would have actually gotten more Republican votes and you would have started um, making an argument to Trump that he should correct his behavior with the idea of trying to improve this president in the year that he has left, you know, in office. Uh, but instead, you know, I think the, there's going to be a hardening and everyone's going to go to the mattresses now. And there's I, I, I don't see any real political dialogue happening either. Oh, no, it's amazing. You should say we're going to the mattresses. Arthur Schlesinger wrote his his critique of the imperial presidency under Lyndon Johnson. But that was Everybody was talking then. Nobody is talking now except in this strange process. Let me put it in here that former Governor Bill Weld of Massachusetts checked in this week from New Hampshire. He's an old-fashioned patrician Republican who's trying to shake Donald Trump's grip on renomination inside the GOP, and he is all in favor of this impeachment project. Like Elizabeth Holtzman and Hillary Clinton as well, he was a young lawyer on the House Judiciary Committee that voted impeachment for Richard Nixon in 1974. Well, to me, it's pretty clear that the conduct that the president has engaged in and admitted to is precisely the sort of thing that the people that wrote our Constitution were worried about. And it's the reason why they put the removal power 
in the Constitution. They were feverishly worried about foreign intrigue and interference in our affairs. I'm not sure it occurred to them that foreigners could interfere in our elections, but that would have been even worse. That would have been the worst thing they could have interfered in. And uh, this is a classic case of something they would have wanted to remove the president for. The other thing they were worried about is a president enriching himself using his office to his own financial gain or the gain of his family or his political assets. In other words, uh, conduct of a public office for private gain of whatever sort. And we've seen that in spades from this president as well. And the last thing was they didn't want people interfering with the constitutional schema, if you will, how it's supposed to work. And there are supposed to be, you know, people populating the, the cabinets and the departments and uh, this president has made no secret of the fact that he would like to amass all power to himself, that he thinks the press is uh, the enemy of the people. And he's said right on top of the table, I don't listen to anybody else. I can do it all myself. I don't want to read. I don't want to listen. It's all about me. It all goes in the same direction. We learn again that impeachment is not a legal proceeding. It's a political process. What do the winds tell you in New Hampshire? So uh, on on the street in New Hampshire and in the diners, the political winds tell me that the president is not popular. People make faces and do a thumbs down sign. And there's some self-selection in that, I assume. But but I'm an equal opportunity employer. When I go into a diner, I shake all 70 hands and I meet three or four Trump voters. Now, that's not a good sign for the president. And I know when you poll a very tight screen of fiercely loyal Republicans, the president comes out a hundred to nothing, because those are people who identify with what he represents to them, namely the Republican Party. But if you if you can't if you canvass a broad cross section of the electorate, including women, millennials, younger voters in general, undeclared voters, you get a very different picture on the ground. That was Bill Weld, who's challenging Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary in New Hampshire next winter. Elizabeth Holton, I mean, Holtzman, come back to Matt's point, but Bill Weld says the same thing. How did we come to this unbelievable chasm in our dialogue, this alienation, going to the mattresses between the parties, even since the House went Democratic? Well, first of all, let me just correct one thing. Hillary Clinton was not on the House Judiciary Committee, neither was Bill Weld. They were members of the staff of the, of the House staff. Judiciary Committee. I was actually a member of Congress having a vote. They did not. So this is just to I, I correct that, that record. Okay. But I think the uh, I, I think it's you know, I was at a time uh in Congress when there was an effort to find a common ground, not just with Republicans. We had extremely conservative Southern Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, for example, who probably had more pro Nixon districts than some of the Republicans, or many of the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. But where did that spirit go? What? Well, I tell you, there were several things that happened, and I see some small signs that that could happen again. Number one, there were people who acted on a basis of principle in the end, because no one knew what the outcome was going to be of our vote for impeachment. Nobody knew. Nobody had any polls in their own districts. They didn't know what was going to happen. Those were profiles of courage. Almost 30% of the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee voted for impeachment. They didn't know what was going to happen. Neither did the Southern Democrats. They did the right thing. But I think it was also a different kind of sense that, you know, there's not just the issue of profile and courage. 
but a commitment to the Constitution. Stand by, Ms. Holtzman. We're coming right back. And when we do, we'll hear a project for the future in restoring a certain American tone of voice in our public chatter. This is Open Source. We're bracing for an impeachment fight in Congress around President Trump with former Congressman Elizabeth Holtzman and Matt Taibbi, the journalist. Three questions that I put to Tim Snyder at the outset. First one, is it possible that the moral rhetoric is sounding a little overheated around whatever Trump was asking of the Ukrainians? How many instances can you think of when American presidents, or almost presidents, played foreign governments for their personal advantage? I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan's campaign at the very end, getting hold of getting Iran to hold off releasing the embassy hostages in Tehran until he was inaugurated, but also George H.W. Bush's twisting arms to assemble his coalition against Saddam Hussein. Or this year, Donald Trump personally handing Syria's Golan Heights as an election favor to Bibi Netanyahu this year, which was going to be a favor to himself for 2020. I mean, Trump seems to be ready to defend that kind of guy-to-guy maneuver in that office. Is it, is it remotely acceptable, Ms. Holtzman? Well, not what he's done in Ukraine. It's not remotely acceptable because um, you may disagree with, and I've disagreed with many actions of presidents in foreign affairs, including the Vietnam War, including the invasion of Iraq, including a variety of other things. But they did it ostensibly. Maybe they had political motives underneath it. But basically what they were doing... But basically what Trump is doing here, there's no pretense. He is using the power of the presidency to force a country to help him with information about a political opponent. This has nothing to do with the benefit for the United States, for the people of the United States. This has a small P political objective, which is his reelection. Matt Taibbi, your, your take on that point? I mean, it's it, uh, forgive me, but it's hard to, for me to take seriously that this uh, of all the things that have happened in my generation are, is going to be the thing that we go impeach a president for. I mean, we the, we had a president who lied to get us into a war in Iraq that triggered hundred uh, you know over a hundred thousand deaths and the loss of five trillion dollars. We had a a vast illegal surveillance program that we only found out about by accident. We had the head of the CIA lying to Congress with no consequence. We had a massive uh, drone assassination program, uh, rendition, which is legalized kidnapping, indefinite detention. All these things are massive human rights violations on an enormous scale that that executives oversaw. And, you know, look, this thing that Trump did, it's sleazy, but it's nowhere near the scale of any of those things. And I think the problem is, you know, and I interview people on the campaign trail, people are aware of this stuff when, you know, they, they say when these enormous, massive things happen without our permission and we're upset about it, nothing, there, there's no consequence. But when it's a fight between Republicans and Democrats and one of the two parties is upset, then they'll go to war over it. And I think I think that's my problem with this with this uh, thing. Well, well spoken. Uh, second question. Well, generally. I disagree with that. Well, I know you do, but we got to get. I got to get a second question for you. Republican versus Democrat. If you can use the powers of the United States government for for political, blatant political purposes, that's yeah, a minor the, the, thing. The, the Republicans. Nick, Richard Nixon them, was impeached. The, hang on, that. hang on. Give, give Matt yeah. a chance. 
the Republicans view the Mueller investigation in exactly the same light. So if you, if you talk to Republican voters, they, they, what they'll say is that the, the actions of the, of the Democratic uh, caucus in Congress and the special prosecutor were essentially political investigations, and that's what they believe. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem of, of uh, point of view with all this stuff. I, and the, the other things, those are clear, massive uh, human rights violations that happen well, to everybody. But you could have a point of view on that, too. I'm not, I'm, not in, I'm not supporting any of the things you're talking about, but your argument is, oh, well, People have committed a lot of murders, and they haven't all been apprehended. So this little murder here only killed one person. This We're isn't not going to deal with what it. Constant, Wait a there, minute. No, I'm just giving you an example. This is I'm giving you a hypothetical case. I'm, it has nothing to do with this. I'm just talking in general. Your theory is because a lot of bad things happened there, and there was no response to them. A smaller bad thing that happened here, no deaths, that we don't deal with it. That's a very logical point of view. Okay, here's because question it two. It is a violation, and when you get presidents doing this, one of the arguments, grounds for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, was that he used the powers of the presidency to cover up a burglary. Okay. You might say, gee, that's nothing. But that removed him from office, as well as his use of power per, of the presidency to, to uh, have these audits of his political opponents, the enemies list. Okay, so hold it, hold it, hold it. Question before. two. Do the Democrats, don't the Democrats need a Colin Powell doctrine about getting into this impeachment fight? Clear objectives. Smoking gun, if they can find one, and an exit strategy. Matt, Matt, tell me first, please. Well, yeah, again, I mean, this this is part of my issue with this. It, the, the, it's not going to work. I mean, the, you need a two-thirds, you know, uh, vote in the Senate to convict, and they're not going to get those votes. It's it would seem to me that if you if your objective is to get Donald Trump out of the presidency, which I completely understand, the the much uh, sounder method is to just win an election against the guy, and it's going to be on roughly the same t uh, timetable. And you know, I've seen colleagues of mine in the press all of a sudden. You see a slew of these columns saying, well, it's not popular enough now, but it could be over time if we press this enough. It, it, it's not going to be. I'm sorry. You're not going to get two-thirds of the votes in the Senate. So what are what are they doing? Elizabeth Holtzman. Well, when we started our impeachment effort against Richard Nixon in October after the Saturday Night Massacre of 1973, we didn't even know what impeachment was. We didn't know how many votes would be on the House Judiciary Committee. We didn't know what the case would be. We didn't know how many Democrats in the in the how many Democrats would vote for it, whether there was whether there were enough votes on Judiciary Committee, whether there were enough votes in the House, and we certainly didn't know what enough votes whether there were enough votes in the Senate. By the way, it never got to the Senate with regard to Richard Nixon because the case was built on such solid evidence and done in such a fair way and a and a professional way. I don't know what's going to be happen here. Nobody can predict it. But I'm saying that if we don't do it, we violate our, our basic principles to uphold the Constitution. Fair the enough. framers wanted impeachment power because they understood the dangers that a president can make in our society if, if he continues to abuse the power. That's of what office. Bill Weld said. He said we, they distrusted the executive in those days. They didn't want a king. Here's question three. From anywhere else in this country... An impeachment fight can look very, very beltway. What is in it for the rest of us? Matt Taibbi first, please. Well, yeah, again, and I and I covered the 2015-2016 presidential campaign from start to finish. I listened to countless people talk about why they they moved their vote to Donald Trump, and this 
this was this is had been my problem from the beginning because the Democrats have poured their energy into one essentially political effort after another to overturn Trump from the release of the steel docks to the, the, the hearings over, um, you know, the Russian interference thing. There was a movement to have him removed via article 25 because of mental incapacity. There was outward over the Helsinki treason episode. But I think what, uh, what I wish would happen was that they would focus on policies that are actually important to people's day-to-day lives, whether that's, you know, healthcare, education, because otherwise you're going to be in danger of losing the election again. I get, I get it. Elizabeth Holtzman, bring that's it home. Just wrong, that's just wrong historically, because when we were working on the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the House of Representatives did its work and passed dozens of major bills at that time, because you can chew gum and walk at the same time. And in fact, the members of the House Judiciary Committee also had to do their other work aside from impeachment. It can be done, and it will be done. So the argument that the House of Representatives can't do the other work is historically wrong and actually wrong. But when you think of the seas rising, Ms. Holtzman, when you think of real emergencies in our public life, especially on the inequality grid, um, this can sound like uh, busy work and a distraction. Yeah, but democracy, the threat to our democracy is as much a, a, an emergency as anything else. It is an, an immediate, yeah, but, but, urgent emergency, but, and we can't ignore it. But voters decide that. That's the, 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 I think well, the they, thing is they'll like, decide it, but that's the, framers, the framers faced that argument when they provided for the impeachment power. People said, what do we need impeachment for? We've got elections. And they said, no, elections are not enough of a remedy because of the danger a president can pose during his term of office or her term of office someday to our democracy. That's why we have it. They answered that point. Elections are not the the answer. The point point, elections are not the answer? Are not the answer to immediate threat from a president of the United States. Impeachment was given as a power to deal with that immediate threat. Of course you have elections, but why do you have impeachment power? Because there's the interim before the election when you have to protect the democracy of the country. Quick question. Would it help to detach the removal power from the impeachment power and pass broad articles of censure, shall we say? In effect, the House disapproves this president on the record. (laughs) Get it down. That's fake. It's, there's nothing in the Constitution that talks to that. Well, yeah, an impeachment doesn't have to, to end in removal. Removed. It should end in removal. That's no. the only purpose of having it. Not otherwise, necessarily. It's an empty, it's, it's otherwise an empty gesture. No, it would be fun to be able to. It would be fun to be able to reprimand presidents for no. for certain misdeeds and say, "Now get on with it." But you're oh, you yeah. stand correct. He's going to change his way of operating. That's that's a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not. It's a fantasy. The fact of the matter is, if he represents a threat to our democracy, which I believe he does, and some other people believe he does. And if we can, then then removal is the only solution, not just a wrap on the wrist. Before we're done, a further thought from Tim Snyder. He has standing with me, if only for his close connection to the late Tony Judd, his fellow historian, the Democratic visionary, and his mentor, who died in 2010 of Lou Gehrig's disease. Tim Snyder was a partner in getting Tony Judd's last deathbed reflections into print, most indelibly a small volume titled Ill Fares the Land. Even then, it was Obama time, early Obama time. Tony Judd felt a contraction of democracy underway and an age of fear coming. That project is very dear to me. 
partly because it reminds us that politics has to be about conversation, which I know is one of your preoccupations as as well, that we don't come to good ideas unless we are able to share concepts and actually talk talk in person in a sensible way, which is what Tony and I were trying to do at the end of his life. I can't say what Tony would say. What I'll do instead is I will I'll recast his major concern in that little book. And Please. it is also one of the concerns in thinking the 20th century. That is the concern about people's ability to live lives which are decent. That is for people's ability to think, I can do something different. I can do something better than I'm doing right now. And that's enabled by, broadly speaking, a welfare state. That is to say, means of public transportation, good infrastructure, reliable schools, pensions, leave for maternity and paternity, and so on. The things that make life— Higher education, too? Yep. The things that make life more predictable so that you can be more unpredictable, so that you can be a free person. The structures which enabled the basic understanding of middle-class freedom, which people took for granted in the Anglo-Saxon world until about the 1980s, we're less free now, we're more predictable now, because it's harder for us to see where we can go. How do we practice reading politicians for their lies, for their jokes, for their character? How do we revive what Hemingway called the great American stuff detector? A certain friendly skepticism, including the howdy and the handshake and all those things that we still want to represent. That's that's such a great question. I mean, I think on, on the one side, we have to be more skeptical about our own basic ideas. We had a war in the middle of the 20th century, and then we had a Cold War in the latter half of the 20th century where we were skeptical or we were critical of other people's ideas. And I think one of the deadliest developments— and this is something that Tony was also preoccupied by and wrote about very articulately, was complacency about our own ideas. Hmm. So, you know, we think capitalism brings democracy or we think technology brings enlightenment. We can think those things, but if we're not observant about what's actually happening in the world, that capitalism, you know, for all of its good sides, also if you don't watch it and monitor it and change it, brings massive debilitating inequality or technology can take the form of social platforms, which actually make you less capable, less cognizant, less of a good citizen. If you don't have the concern that your own ideas might also be an ideology and that ideology might be trapping you, then you're going to be in trouble. And that is what's happened to us. Our own ideas became an ideology and it's trapped us. We should be very skeptical of people who say there are no alternatives because there are. There are lots of alternatives and that's what democracies are made for is to imagine them and then to realize a few of those alternatives. And as far as the friendly skepticism, I mean, a huge part of this, I'm afraid, is the internet. If you're spending 11 hours a day, as the average American does, in front of a screen, it's very hard to develop the skills that you need to talk to people who disagree with you a little bit. We've all gotten much, much worse at this, and we've all gotten used to being patted on the back by not so much people but by algorithms who tell us that the way we feel is A-OK and the things that we think are, of course – always, always right. This is going to take, I think, a certain amount of of willpower. But also, in order for us to have conversations, Chris, about the life that's around us, we need to have people who are reporting on that life. And for me, this may actually be the single most important problem in the U.S. That is, we have lost in the last quarter century our local news. 
and without local news reporting, without people generating the facts that actually matter to people about their schools or their water supply or whatever it might be, they don't actually have things to talk about. So they end up talking about things that are distant, Washington or the world, you know, Mm. rather than the things that actually matter to them. And that gives politics this hollow, you know, this hollow phantom character that it's taken on in the last 10 years or so, where we're not ever really talking about real things. We're talking about echoes of echoes of echoes. So if America is going to be revived and we're going to have skepticism, that skepticism is going to have to be based upon things that we actually know. Mm. And knowing things is going to depend upon reporting coming back. That sounds like the great Tony Judd. He said most people in this country are not part of any consequential conversation. They wouldn't know where to find it. I, my little checklist of Tony Judd-isms is beware money worship and we're deep in it. Watch out for this abandonment of social democracy. You call it the welfare state, but we believe in social democracy. And finally, our dilapidated public conversation. What would your additions to your on-tyranny checklist be, Tim Snyder, deep into the first Trump administration? On tyranny is not about Mr. Trump. It's about us. It's about our paying attention. It's about our leaning forward. I wouldn't add anything to that checklist, but what I do think is that we need to be thinking about a future which is qualitatively different and better than the present. I think the future can only win if the future has friends. And that involves not just trying to cancel out the bad stuff, but thinking about how things could be way better than they are right now. Mm-hmm. How on issues of climate and technology, for example, we, we don't just need to stop problems. We need to think that if we had the technology which solved climate change, that technology would also make life much better and cheaper for an awful lot of people. Or if we could stop the problem of the internet basically being one big data farm in which, you know, we're the cattle, if we could stop that, we could we could imagine a digital world which was much more enabling rather than rather than disabling and so on and so forth. I, that for me is, is the big missing category category of politics, getting the future back into it, not imagining that the present, you know, just needs to be repaired or somebody has to be gotten out of office, but that, you know, we can actually build into something which is much better than where we are now. And of course, social democracy, to use Tony's term, was always all about that. It's always, social democracy is about how a middle class can look hopefully into the future because certain kinds of problems are taken care of in the present. Thank you, Tim Snyder. Thank you, Congresswoman Holtzman, who was later comptroller of the state of New York. Thank you, Matt Taibbi, and Governor Bill Weld, too. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath remains unimpeachable. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.